welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. Syosset Public Library's Turn the Page podcast. This is Jessica, um, one of your hosts today. My co-host is Jen. Hi. And we're welcoming back one of our absolute favorite authors um, ever. Uh, please tell everybody who you are. We know who you are, but oh, yep. are this is Grady Hendricks uh, back back again for more. You keep coming back. I know. What's wrong with me? <laughs> no. Uh, your book, How to Sell a Haunted House, is awesome. It is Thank so, you. so good there. It's like, it's amazing. Uh, Jen, do you have anything to say before we like Grady talk? Oh, my gosh. Just like I, you know, like against all of my uh, best efforts, I've read this book like in a day and a half. Like I really wanted to savor it, you know, and like make it last. But like I just like blazed through it it was it, it was like so propulsive and it, like readable like it was like oh, oh great like <laughs> no thanks I really appreciate that it's always weird when someone says that because on the one hand that's how I want you to read the book but there's always a tiny part of my mind that's like but it took me 18 months to write it yeah mm. well this one and this one was really hard to land I had three vastly different versions of this book before I kind of got to this fourth one where hey, it was different throughout, but the real, di- like the back third was was wildly different. I mean, there were puppet cults in one of them. There was all kinds of weird stuff. And um, this is the right ending, but it really took me a long time to get there. I was, And I was actually getting really, really nervous because I've never it's always tough to to figure a book out, but like I'd never had this much trouble before. I okay, so like at some point, I hope you put a pin in Puppet Cults, and we'll come back to that because okay. I would read that freaking book. But let's talk about this one. So, um, tell us a little bit about how to sell a haunted house. Technically, this is the third book, um, which is set in the same neighborhood. Am I correct? Yeah, the third and final one set in Charleston, where I'm from. Um, I think I've said everything I have to say about Charleston. Um, I don't think I can go too far afield because I've got to write about a place that I know pretty well. Otherwise, it just doesn't feel convincing to me. But, you know, I'm writing a book now for 2024 that's set in St. Augustine. So another um, southern, very old, historic tourist town on the East Coast. Uh, you know, within and driving it's, distance it's of Charleston. I love Florida horror. Yeah. There is so much in Florida yeah. that lends itself to horror. Yeah. And when I went down there to do research, I realized like the bugs are brutal, man. Like I, I walked into the woods at one point, just to sort of like, oh, be in the woods and get a feel for that. And within seconds, I was running for my car because I was just swarmed by these horrible black flies. Like, I mean, like going up your nose, everything. So yeah, that's um, Florida. Florida really treated me rough. Um, but yeah, so How to Sell a Haunted House. It's about two adult siblings, a brother and a sister who hate each other. And um, they have to come back together much against their will to clean out and sell their childhood home after their parents die in, a, in an accident. Um, and I feel like that's something we're all going to have to do at some point. 
Um, I've had to do it for friends before. Um, a friend of mine was just doing it for his parents while I was writing this book, his dad. Um, and so it's just, you know, one of those things. And as my parents get older, they're in their late 80s now. It's um, one of those things that really uh, my sisters and I are becoming more and more aware of, not just we're going to have to deal with all the stuff our parents leave behind, but also, um, you know, what's our family like? You know, our parents have been the, the common denominator and there's five of us. And so it's kind of like, how do we relate to each other once they're gone? And and so that's been really weird to figure out. And I think that was really on my mind when I was writing this book. Um, and, and, you know, the house is haunted. The, uh, the brother and sister cleaning out, obviously. Uh, it says that right there in the title. Um, and unfortunately, it's haunted by puppets and dolls, which I really feel bad about doing that to readers. Wait a second, why do you feel bad about doing that to readers? Because every time I say that, you can see people cringe and sort of swallow their gorge a little. It, it's disgusting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, I think, and I think one of the funny things with puppets and dolls, and a, um, a puppet's just a doll turned up to 11. But the funny thing with dolls is that um, we're all kind of like, ooh, gross, haunted dolls. And we immediately start thinking of like, you know, Victorian dolls and frilly dresses with porcelain faces. But, you know, I grew up surround, you know, there's clown dolls on the sofa. There's a Harlequin, you know, sitting on the sideboard. And then you think about like, you know, you walk into an office, the, well, I don't really know about an office these days, but, or an office in 2019, everyone's cubicles full of Funkos and baby Yodas and dogs have toys that are shaped like dolls. And, you know, Guilty. we're surrounded. Yeah, like yeah. we're surrounded by them, you know, um, action figure collectors and all this stuff. Like we love little miniature versions of ourselves. That is so interesting to me, too, about like how there is this image of like the haunted doll, because I'm even thinking of like, um, you know, the Annabelle movies. Like sure. the way that they designed the doll for those films is she's like overtly horrifying. She has like the pale porcelain face and like a very hostile demeanor. But like if you see <laughs> the actual Annabelle doll from like, you know, footage from the Warren's home, she, it, it's like a Raggedy Ann doll. You know, it's like it's a rag yeah. doll. It's I, had that yeah. doll. I had that Raggedy Ann <laughs> doll. Yeah. It's Did you really? Still in my parents' guest. If you want it, I will mail it to you. <laughs> no it thanks. In my parents' house, that has to be cleaned out, and it has Andy with it. So you're welcome oh. to it. God no. <laughs> um, but you know, it's funny, right? Because I think one of the things I was really conscious of was that image, and so you know. Uh, the brother and sister, Mark and Louise in the book, their mom has a Christian puppet ministry. And so their house is full of puppets, but they're not scary, but they're like Muppety puppets. They're made of foam and, and felt and all that stuff because that's more what people do. I find that just as scary as some creepy looking puppet with like, you know, an old dirty face made of wood, but it's not where your mind first goes with haunted. But I really, I like I don't know. I like the world around us a lot. I don't feel a need to alter it too much. I really love um, that sort of a liminal space you find in like the suburbs sometimes where it's like, um, it's not quite a park. It's not quite an empty lot. It, you know, uh, it, it, dead malls. A friend of mine went to, they got their vaccination center, was in a dead mall. Um, and they were sending me pictures from it. I mean, all these weird kind of anonymous um, retail spaces and commercial spaces and, and 
houses. I mean, um, I stay in a lot of Airbnbs when I'm on the road uh, doing book tour stuff. And there is a style of sort of anonymous Airbnb style that I find really disturbing. I, saw, I don't know if you guys saw that movie Barbarian that came out last year. Yes. I found that... <laughs> I found the stuff set in the Airbnb way more terrifying than the stuff set in the underground murder tunnels because I've been in that Airbnb. They're all the same. You know, and you mentioned dead malls, which is a little bit of a, ni a niche obsession of mine. Oh, okay. I, I are there any out yeah. there where you are? Um, I mean, all malls are dead malls if you think about it the right way. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think like, True. to be honest with you, I, I feel like, yes, Um, however, the I think that the most dead of the dead malls was recently taken over and is kind of becoming something else. But man, they, like there's something about that that is super, super unsettling, um, especially if yeah. you the golden age of malls. So, uh, you know, it's funny. Um, I don't know if you all know the Righteous Gemstones, that Danny McBride show on HBO, but they use Citadel Mall, which was the big hip shopping mall when I was growing up and is now dead they use that as their soundstage. So I'll watch the show and I'll be like, oh my God, they're like this, this church is Citadel Mall. This, the, everything is set in Citadel Mall. So it's weird. I'm like seeing my childhood in that show. It's very, it's a weird experience. In addition to that, um, what, uh, you know, the third season of Stranger Things has this big mall scene, which is set, I think in the Gwinnett County Mall in Georgia, which is a dead mall. And there was a murder there, so. Oh, no way. A hundred percent. So anyway, yes, man. but but getting back to so her so Louise and Mark's mom, um, you know her her parents die in a car crash. Um, they're living completely different lives. Louise and Mark. Louise comes back to deal with the aftermath of the death and um, all of that not so fun stuff. But you mentioned that um, the, her mom was part of a um, pub a Christian puppet ministry. Is there such yes. a thing? Oh yeah, absolutely. My my cousin has a, a puppet ministry. Um, a lot of you know, it's a really. It used to be. I think it used to be a little bigger than it is now in the '90s and early 2000s. But I don't know, man. But yeah, there's a Christian puppetry conference and all this stuff. It it's really you know you want you know it's aimed at kids and uh, and I also think you know a lot of people if they're super involved in their church are looking for artistic expression, right? They belong to the choir. The handbell choir. My mom, my mom was in the handbell choir. You know, they teach art at the Sunday school. So, you know, to me, it's a it's a small leap. I I, I just find like um, the relationship between like puppeteer and puppet to be like outside of a horror context is already kind of creepy. You know, yeah. <laughs> within a horror context, is even creepier. Because I remember, like in college, I was putting together like a Dante show. I was doing like a divine comedy type thing. And this puppeteer woman uh, uh, auditioned and she did a bit. And she kept like, while she was talking to me, like sliding out of her own voice and into the voice of the puppet and engaging with it. It was like a, a, uh. a traditional, like uh, um, ventriloquist type doll, you know? Sure. And like she, the puppet would talk for her and cut her off and stuff like that. And I'm like, this is like, you are no longer... A, one individual, I feel like your identity yeah. is merged with this other thing that wasn't real until you made it real, you know, and then later yeah. 
on um my crazy addiction because like her family had a you're addicted to your puppet intervention like <laughs> no really yeah <laughs> that's what but you know i've talked to several ventriloquists and stuff who who talk about this who talk about sort of that that sliding between the two personalities um and and um it's really really fascinating it's also something that's I think we all respect it on some level. Um, in like medieval England, uh, they uh, used to do passion plays, you know, the Bible stories, the, the crusades across, things like that. And it became illegal to do them because the idea was actors are basically whores and criminals. And why are they pretending to be, to impersonate religious figures? That's really, that's really blasphemous. And so the way these acting troops got around it as they started doing the passion plays with puppets. And the authorities were like, oh yeah, well, as long as it's not people doing it, it's puppets, that's fine. But here's the kick, it's still people doing it. The puppets aren't real, they're not alive. It's people with little schmatas on their hands. And yet somehow the law recognized some distinction between the person and the puppet. It's really, because you know, if you're if you're if you're regulating something as blasphemous, I'm not sure like God's gonna go. Oh well, he had a little bit of felt on his hand when he was pretending to be Moses, so that's fine. Um, you know, it's 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 really weird. Um, and I used to do puppetry all the time, and um, and uh, I mean, I was in a radical puppet collective for a little bit, and um, you really do feel puppets and masks. You feel like it's a different person. It Okay, so what is a radical puppet collective? We were, we had no one leader. We did everything by consensus and democratic vote. And we were very politically minded. And so our shows were all political. They were about Hydro-Quebec and Canada. They were, um, uh, we did, we did one that the story in the book about the puppet show at the elementary school. I did that show. Uh, it was pre 9-11. So our version of the show was about Pinochet and his fascist regime in Chile and the disappeared. But I think it was just as incomprehensible to third graders. But for us, it was like, well, this is what we do. Why would we change our show? We do this kind of puppetry. Um, and uh, it, it, we weren't asked to leave, but there weren't, they weren't real thrilled, you know? <laughs> And I, I think they were more they were more baffled than angry at like, what do we do? What are we doing? Like, what are we doing with like you were showing third and fourth graders a show about, you know, disappearing civilians for to be tor politically tortured. Um, I think I think I think rightly so. They questioned whether that was appropriate content. That's amazing. <laughs> but when you put on a mask and the puppets we did were big. I mean, they, they fit your whole body. So it's somewhere between a mask and a puppet. Um, it really was a different personality. I mean, you would absolutely feel like someone else and and you would really feel um, the weight and the shape and the design of the mask or the puppet sort of informing what you did. Um, so it was it was cool. I mean, it was really like getting to getting to sort of do possession state 101. Um, and there's a lot of cultures where wearing a mask and, and dancing or singing or performing music, you know, helps you go into a trance state where you're possessed by a god or a, a spirit or something like that. So, I mean, it's a it's a pretty normal human experience. I just think uh, it's not common. So we it sounds weirder than it is. But yeah, I mean, I encourage anyone like um, 
make a mask, do some mask work. It's really fun. And it's a, it's the freakiest you can get with while still being sober. So, okay. So going a little bit to the, to the characters. So first of all, there is one puppet in particular Mm. um, who is sort of the puppet master (laughs) or the master puppet. Um, and I got a very awesome Thanksgiving card with him. Oh, on. yeah. And I want to thank you because I will cherish that forever. Uh, but, you know, there's the story of it's Pupkin, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, his relationship with um, Louise and Mark's mom, which uh, kind of comes into play a lot because Louise hates Pupkin. Um, right. He is terrifying to her. But you also talk about the book, The Velveteen Rabbit, which thank you, because that book terrified me as a kid. You you say, like, there's a a quote, like, what the the hell is a skin horse anyway? Yeah. What is a skin horse? I still don't know. What there was, there was an actual earlier version of the book where the skin horse makes an appearance. um, And it's just a snuffly thing with four kind of like almost like a kid has drawn a horse with no head. And it just is sort of all made of skin and it was disgusting. And my editor was like, this is really disgusting and disturbing, but I don't know if this book has room for psychically manifested (laughs) children's books characters, which was a fair point. But uh, yeah, the skin horse has always weirded me out. I mean, I always thought it was a rocking horse that used an actual horse's skin was kind of- Why don't they just say that? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. But that's still kind of disturbing in general. So, yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like a fake dead horse a child rides. Um, Yeah, there's no, and also, you know, I got to say, after being to a certain number of weddings where people read, do readings in the Velveteen Rabbit, the book disturbed me as a kid. And that just really drove it home. And I hate this idea of like somehow getting battered and eaten and all you know and really like broken and worn out somehow makes you more real and loved i'm like that's not how it works like it's it's just oh my god i hate like those are readings at weddings yeah yeah but it is like that message of like love will hollow you out and like remove everything about you that is you and i'm like that's a terrible (laughs) message yeah (laughs) <laughs> well, and there was always something in the Velveteen Rabbit, like just the masochism of these animals all clamoring for the boy and the boy like the, he's 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 like, whatever. Yeah, I got sick. Burn him in the trash. Like, you know, just I mean, it's it's the same way. Like, I really like the Toy Story movies. They're adorable. But there is a part of me that's like, you know, Andy, the kid is getting off way too easy on these movies. Like these toys, these toys are way too accepting of their quote unquote place in the world. Like. You know, let's let's see a little revolutionary action toys. And the last one is a total horror story, in my opinion. So Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I'm with you. The one with the like uh little dummies, the little like ventriloquist yeah. dummies in the antique yeah, story. I, yeah. I can go on, I can go on so many rants about why that movie was wrong. <laughs> but we're talking about your book. So sure, talk. sure. So um uh, you know, another thing like that really was great in the book. Uh, so you have the relationship with Louise and Mark and also the puppet, but you also have Louise and like her, um, her cousins and her aunts. Um, yeah. yeah. 
really, no, it was really well done. Oh, thanks. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, you know, my, one of my sisters-in-law called me out years ago, back when I did my best friend's exorcism, pointing out, they're like, my characters were all only children. And I was like, yeah, you're right, because we all exist in these big networks of family and extended family, but they're really hard to do. Like, it's like, that's why writers don't do them. They're really hard because you've got to come up with every member of the family. You've got to come up with their relationship, what they're doing at all times. And it's a real pain in the butt. And so um, I really, with this book, wanted to sort of place Mark and Louise in a family, you know, with, with relatives. And, and one of the things I always see in books, you know, the other thing that I think people do that's a bit of a cheat is, you know, the orphan thing. It's like, you know, we exist in relationship to so many people around us. Um, I feel like you kind of have to have them all in there. Like, we are not free of human uh, familial relationships by the time we're 18. We're tangled up in them for the rest of our lives in one way or another. Um, and so, I mean, when I see my friends, these I'm 50. And when I see my friends, you know, ever since our 40s, our number one topic of conversation is our crazy siblings who only, you know, your siblings only get crazier as they get older and then dealing with your parents and aging and dying and things. I mean, that's where you go naturally in a conversation. Um, and so I felt like that stuff just had to be in there. Um, and it's funny, the book I'm working on now is people who are deliberately separated from their families. But even then, I'm having to figure out their whole families because it's like, well, is this, is this an oldest child or is this the youngest child? Is this, you know, is this a kid? Is this a kid who misses their brothers and sisters, who misses their parents or who doesn't? So I still had to do it. So I've kind of, I've kind of created a problem where I need more and more background as I write my books for my characters in order to feel convincing to me as I write them, which means I'm writing slower and slower, which I hate. So um, yeah, it's uh, I, I've created a, um, an issue for myself here. Um, your book has a really interesting introduction where you talk about what drew you to trying your hand at Gothic horror, especially in like the context of like the, you know, the COVID era. And I was wondering yeah. Talk a little bit about that. Like what drew you to that at this particular time? And like, maybe what do you think the influence of the pandemic has been on like your horror and maybe like horror at large, if that's something that you've given any Yeah. Well, you know, originally this book was going to come out in summer of 2021, I think. 2021? Yeah, summer of, no, summer of 2022. Um, and so it had to be due midway through 2021. And it wasn't, but when I was writing it, you know, the vaccines were just out. And when I had started it, this was going to be set in January of 2021, pre-vaccine really. And, you know, they, they were just out. It was going to be a real COVID book. And as I started writing, we just started, the world started moving further and further away from there. And even though people are still dying of COVID, you know, it feels very, um, you know, like, like a book, you don't, your book set now, people aren't masking really much. Like it's part of the background, not the foreground, um, for better or for worse. Um, but, but the real impetus for this was, was sort of twofold. One is I missed my family during the lockdown and I wanted to spend time with the family. And so I was able to create a book where I imagine, I thought now's the time to take on that challenge and do a book about a family and let me sort of make up this family and kind of spend time with them and all that. And um, 
because, you know, thinking about, I've, I've got this huge document. It's like year by year, this family, the, the vacations they took, the inside jokes, the sicknesses, all that stuff. Um, and I also realized if I was writing a book about a family, it had to kind of be a haunted house book and, and more of a classical one. Like I did horror store about a haunted Ikea, but I need to do a more classic haunted house book because those are always about families. They're about um you know, the family secrets, the family curses, the family stories, the, um, and all that. And so I really, um, found, I found that that kind of Gothic horror really it's Gothic horror is about families, you know? Um, even if you look at some of the stuff that's not really classified as Gothic, like, I mean, I think beloved by Toni Morrison and Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson are the two major, uh, uh, horror novels of the 20th century, but they're both about families. I mean, you know, Beloved is about losing your family and trying to put a new one together uh, and, and, and what that means. And Haunting of Hill House is all about Eleanor, who's just lost her mother and wa- trying to find a new family to fit into, um, you know. And so these books, like Haunted House books, are just naturally, they're about families. I mean, The Shining, even though it's not a haunted house, it's a haunted hotel. It's all about the Torrance family. Um burnt offerings a family goes off or is that amityville horror is about a family um it just over and over again if it's a haunted house it's about a family a turn of the screw you know even though that's ostensibly about a governess it's all about this extended family around these two children who have this absentee guardian and the servants who stand in for their parents and what how they took advantage of that position um so it's just it was weird to me once i started looking because sometimes you come up with these theses and you're like oh yeah but like the more I looked, the more I was like, oh my God, for once I was right. They are all about family. <laughs> Towards the end of this book, I was reading a lot of Gothic romances, you know, with the ones with the covers with the women running from houses. And um, they're so great. But again, they're all about family. They're all about marrying into a new family. For sure. And I wonder, like, while, you know, while you were talking, it occurred to me that like, I wonder if like, you know, the pandemic functioned in families in a way that like, you know, the haunted house does in a Gothic story because like the pandemic forced people together and like put them in more close contact for longer hours. And like, maybe, yeah, maybe like ancient beefs came up, you know, like, and so it's interesting about how like, maybe that's why we're so drawn to these stories about like confrontations and secrets coming out and, you know, like all these things have been happening. <laughs> well, and I think, you know, you make a really good point because I think two things happened, I, in my opinion. One is seeing family become a, became a treat, not an obligation if you didn't live with your family. Like, you know what I mean? Like you're not able to see them. So it's like, oh, oh, I kind of want to. Now that, you know what I mean? Like, like now that it's not mandatory, I'm actually look forward to it. And I think the other thing is when you're locked down together, I mean, I did a couple of Zoom meetings during the pandemic uh, with people who'd been locked down um, with a partner and we're getting a divorce and we're locked down together or separated. Um, And I also like, you know, know that um, one of the reason a lot of uh, law enforcement officials feel like the homicide rate went up is because the pandemic, people were sheltering together and there was a lot of interfamily homicide. Um, you know, everyone was under a ton of stress, psychological pressure. And, um, yeah. And it was weird because when those numbers went up, I think a lot of people were like, crime's going up, cities are in chaos, they're out of control. When really what a lot of it was, was 
I'm depressed. I've lost my job and my partner is really getting on my nerves. And if you or my cousin or whoever, I mean, I can't tell you how many times in New York I would read like the little like, you know, police blotter thing. And it would be like, oh, two cousins got in an argument over the volume of the music. And one of them went in the house and got a gun. Or, you know, two people got in an argument over um, borrowing the car and one of them hasn't got a gun. Like, I just, we were all up in each other's grills. It wasn't pretty. Yeah. And I think like one thing, and it also kind of comes into play in this particular story, you know, so Louise and Mark, like they have their reasons for being um, not close. And I don't want to talk about it because you should read and find out exactly what is going on. I mean, there's a lot of family. I appreciate it. Yeah, there's a lot of family that is not close for various reasons. Um, there's, it's just very, very interesting. Um, well, and also to that yeah. point though, Jessica, is, is also, I think we all think we know our family. Like I, I got my family figured out and I can't tell you how disorient, disorienting it is when you're talking to a family yeah. member, especially a sibling, and their version of the same event is radically different from yours. And 100%. you're like, wait, percent. Yeah. What? How 100%. do you even think that? But like one thing that, that's interesting about Mark and Louise, and this is something, you know, like my, my parents, and this is a whole, you know, um, who both recently passed um, very close together. You know, they came from an era, an era, <laughs> an era when you did not really move too far away from right. your family. Although when they were growing up, like, like, as adults, some of their siblings did move away. And um, family, like parents were like, how dare you do this? You know, you're supposed to stay within the family. Uh, And I think, you know, that's a interesting point about just, you know, how um, connectivity of technology can either be like, it's okay that I'm moving away, because we can think long distance phone calls are not a thing anymore. Yeah. You don't have to you don't have to call Western Union and you know like telegram each other like literally everything is instantaneous. But I think it's easier to move away from family now. Um and if you're estranged from family, it's kind of easier to absolve yourself from saying it's okay that I'm not going to be close to my parents and that I'm doing this thing. But the older generation doesn't necessarily feel the same way about it. A hundred percent. Well, it's interesting. So my mom has two sisters and their parents are in Charleston. Their parents' parents are all in Charleston. My mom and her sisters all live in Charleston and raised families there. And there are out of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, out of 10 uh, cousins my age, two live in Charleston. You know, when before this generation, everyone lived in Charleston, you know, on, on that side of the family. So you're right. You're 100% right. We're sort of that generation that's like, I'm going to move. I'm, I'm good. I don't, I don't want you in my house three times a week. Well, and I also think a lot of it was also um, jobs and work and just, you know, you moved where your interests took you. I remember my grandfather um, really, really wanted to move to Columbia, which is about about a two hour drive from Charleston. And my grandmother couldn't stand to live away from her mother because she like, she saw her so much. And so they stayed in Charleston and that's like two hours away. That's nothing. Yeah. That is really interesting to me because there are these like 
generational divides that you, I think, do see in this story. And like the way that, you know, I'm going to try to talk about it vaguely as to not give so much away, but, you know, like parents have expectations, you know, and Mm -hmm. siblings will either fulfill them or not fulfill them. And that creates like different feelings of parents towards different children. And then that makes like siblings resent each other and stuff like that. And I feel like there's just so much, (laughs) like it's such a complex, like emotional dynamic of people who are like, sitting on these truths in order to keep the peace, but like just sort of, you know, things simmering and bubbling up that like won't be. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. Listen, my family, like, you know, right now, one of the things is um, I'm the youngest, I'm the only boy. And in my family, we're all big readers. So, you know, my mom's eating this up um, that, you know, I'm a writer and I make a living at it and all that. She loves it. And she's it. And I'm glad she loves it. But like, my sisters are just like, if I hear one more thing about you, I swear I'm going to fly to New York and beat you to death with one of your books. Um, and we get along and everything, but, but I'm glad they're able to say that because if they didn't, if they thought they weren't able to, I think they would murder me eventually. Which book did they say? <laughs> they, oh, they, didn't speci- they didn't specify no I imagine it would have to be a hardcover or like three of the trade paperbacks just held you know together um right but yes but like I can <laughs> see like how that would be really obnoxious you know in in your family if if you felt like you couldn't say that um and also you know it's funny like my parents got divorced when I was 13 and my youngest sister is about six years older than I am So they were all out of the house and my parents got divorced. So my sisters are always like, oh, you're so spoiled. You didn't have to follow the same rules we did. You got all this. You get everything. I'm like, dude, this is not fun. (laughs) Do you think this is fun here? I I don't have a license. I can't get out of the house. And our parents are crazy and getting divorced. I don't want to be here. I will swap places gladly with any of you. So it's like everyone thinks they have their family all figured out, but everyone is wrong <laughs> you know one another thing just um, really quickly because i know we have to wrap up soon is um just like i i love the emotion that you put into horror um you know there's there's a lot of there are a lot of moments in this book where i was kind of like physically reacting uh the but the the emotion of everything just kept me in it and it's just really, really well done. Was this some, um, I mean, I know that everything is set in your old neighborhood or, you know, around Charleston. Yeah. Was, um, you know, was there a lot of personal um, stuff that was kind of like put into the story? Because uh, it felt yeah. very real. Oh, sure. I mean, you know, I sort of, there's sort of three angles on that and one is yeah I you I try to use real places and uh people like no one's actually anyone in my books but like everyone starts off based on someone I know or some characteristic I know and someone no one's ever you, like been like oh that's me it's not like that but you know but the house Mark and Louise live in that's my aunt's house that I really I love that house like I that's where we did all our Thanksgivings and Christmases so I try to like put on and there's a lot of like slightly altered family stories in here and a lot of childhood memories and things. I mean, um, and, uh, and incidents. Um, so yeah, I try to put all that in because I want to be having a genuine emotional reaction as I write it. Um, 
And then the other thing is I write about stuff I care about a lot. Like, you know, I really am trying to think through, I'm very lucky my parents are both still alive, but I am trying to think through like what happens next, you know, and, and what's that going to be like? Cause I, I also know my, my parent, my dad has especially had a health scare before where it was very much pack a suit, come home. Um, And even in that moment, it taught me enough to know, no matter how prepared I think I am, I'm not prepared. Like no matter how much I think it through, it's going to blindside me. Um, And so so that's a really, and, and also like, you know, I, I am interested in, in my family and, and how people, brothers and sisters relate to each other. And, and also our relationship with inanimate objects, which is weird and childhood stuffed animals. And so, so I try to set it and pack it with a lot of emotional stuff for me. I try to make it about stuff that's emotional stuff I care about. And then the third thing is the emotions are the only thing that matters, you know, otherwise you wind up in this sort of empty arms race where it's like, okay, a haunted puppet. Now, what about a haunted clown? Now, what about a haunted giant clown? Okay. Now a haunted giant clown with lawnmower blades for teeth. Like you keep escalating this physical stuff. Whereas if people just care about these characters, those physical stakes can stay realistic because you care. You know, I just read, um, the William Goldman book magic about the guy with the killer ventriloquist dummy. Um, and it's, it's a tough, but it's really a disorienting book for the first 30 or 40 pages. And I stuck with it. And I actually am glad I did it. Cause it's, it's a really brilliant book, but it's a book with a very low body count. And, but you're so emotionally sucked into it that there were a couple of moments where I really was cringing hard. And I rarely do that. Because I'm like, no, how can you, ah, you, and so I feel like the, that emotional connection that I try to make with the book and the subject matter works for the reader because that way we don't wind up in a, in a gore fest um, or a zombie fest or just having to escalate the physical stuff. The emotional stuff works, I hope. It absolutely does. And, you know, that leads me to, I think my, what my last question is, is the, the central sibling relationship here because it is so powerful and it is like really raw you know mm-hmm. and I'm really interested in how like um you know when you were talking about masks earlier I was thinking about how like the mother's presence like in their children's life in this story um sort of like almost acts like a mask you know because like everybody behaves and everybody keeps quiet in order to like not upset mom who wants to keep mm. the peace, you know? And then when mom disappears, like the mask comes off and all these like long held tensions come up. And like, it's just so, so raw that sometimes I was just like, whoo boy, like this is like, it, it's like, that is where the horror is for me. Like it is emotional horror because thinking about yourself going through those things is just like, is, is awful, but therapeutic yeah. too. Really. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, somewhat, but you know, it, but that is like, how often do like, people and families use other people as like a mask or an excuse to do something like, oh, your father's going to be so upset or like, you know, we stayed together for you kids or like, you know, you can't like do that. Mom will be so hurt. Like, I mean, just, and, and I think we're usually wrong. I mean, we're the ones who have the issue. Um, we had a thing in our family a few months ago where one person was kept being like, I don't want to use any names, but one member of my family kept, kept texting everyone with all these concerns over the psychological health of this other member of the family. 
And I'm just like, project much? Like, they're fine. You're the one who's going through this really stressful, I didn't say this, but I was like, they were going through a really stressful situation, but they projected it onto another member of the family. And it's just like, and we were all just like, what? Come on. Like, and it was very hard not to call them out on it, but that would have been the worst thing possible. I just want to thank you. This is, it's always such a pleasure to talk to you. I would love to do a, an event with you at some point in the future. Uh, I know, I know. It's, um, they, they packed me up. I'm like booked up through March ridiculously, but we'll figure it out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you so much. Everybody, please read How to Sell a Haunted House. Um, you know, I don't think you need any prior knowledge of Brady's previous books to read it. Um, but there are Easter eggs and I appreciate them. Um, oh. oh, you yes. saw those. I'm glad. <laughs> of course. Of yes. course. Um, um, yeah. The Mount Pleasant verse, the Charleston verse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it was good to chat with you. Thank you for doing this, Jen. And Jessica, take care of yourself, please. Oh, thank you so much. Um, so once again, this was Jessica with Say Awesome Libraries Turn the Page podcast. Our guest today, oh, and, and my library co-host was. Hi, Jen. Goodbye. And our guest was. <laughs> Grady Hendricks. And we are going to close this chapter of Turn the Page. It's time to close this chapter of Turn the Page. Join us for the next episode.